Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Kaylin McPherson. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first, Mark Dunley reports on the upcoming community meeting in Saratoga to talk about the status of efforts to stop Saratoga biochar from building a sewage sludge biochar plant. Then Bria Barthel gives us a taste of the New York folklore, folklore current exhibition Day of the Dead. Later on, Mark Russo, Russo talks with Dylan Rees about aquaponics. Then we get our weekly dose of laughs. You can laugh now, Cena. <laughs> with talks with local comedian Mike McLaughlin. Finally, Tom Francis shares the work of Pittsburgh photographer and poet Jason Baldinger. But first, here are your headlines. The Times Union reports that Stewart's Shops uh, are closing its sto- it, uh, Stewart's Shops is closing its store in Manning Boulevard in Albany at Central Avenue after an increase in robberies, shoplifting, and verbal and physical assaults. Amtrak has suspended service between Albany and New York City for the third day and has not provided any indication to, as to when all services will be restored. The City of Schenectady's Ethics Board will review on Thursday a complaint by Schenectady Police Lieutenant Michael Dalton's uh, against the City Councilman Damani Farley, stemming from the towing of a vehicle belonging to a friend of Farley's. Dalton, who served on the board, has recused himself from the review. A related complaint against Farley by the chair of the Republican Party was dismissed, dismissed since the complaint uh, was not an official or um, employee of the city. The board previously ruled that Farley had not violated any rules by being a consultant to the local school district. Albany downtown bus station is reportedly set to be purchased by Capitalize Albany, the city's economic development arm. The Times Union said that the plan is to build a larger Albany parking authority garage with bus stations on the bottom floor. Several hundred people gathered in Capitol Park in Albany on Monday for a pro-Israel rally. It was ahead of Tuesday's massive pro-Israel rally in Washington, D.C., On Tuesday, they called for the hostages being held by Hamas to be released. The record reports that that when the temperature dips to under 10 degrees, or if there is a foot of snow on the ground, several area organizations pool their resources to issue a code blue to get people who are living on the streets into a warm environment. Over the past three years, the code blue initiative has held housed a maximum of 589 people. A state-appointed commission is recommending to the Board of Regents that students should be given many more ways to graduate from high school instead of only passing Regents' exams. The commission said students should get to choose their classes within broad categories and then demonstrate mastery in whatever way works best for them. New York is one of the one of only seven states that still requires students to pass exams to to receive a high school diploma. The city of Troy's bond rating was raised one level last week to an A-plus grade, reflecting an increase in the city's reserve funds to $12 million from $2.5 million in 2020. 
The Center for Constitutional Rights has filed a lawsuit against President Biden, accusing him of failing to ratify international and U.S. law to prevent Israel's genocide in Gaza. And that's it for your headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. So on Thursday, November 16th, there will be a community meeting held to inform concerned area residents around the status of efforts to stop Saratoga biochar from building a sewage sludge biochar plant in Moreau. Mark Dunley reports. We're talking with uh, Tracy Frisch, who is chair of Clean Air Action uh, Network of, of Glen Falls, and, and they and I guess a few other groups are holding a community update on Thursday, November 16th, starting at 6 at the Monroe Community Center uh, as part of the campaign to stop Saratoga biochar from building in the Monroe Industrial Park. So, Tracy, why are you pulling the meeting together? Well, okay. So, so a year and a half ago, people found out that a company that had never built or operated anything that named itself Saratoga Biochar plant was um, proposing to build the first sewage sludge biochar plant in the state, in the industrial park, which only had one one plant. Um, and since then, people have been fighting on multiple fronts. The proposal was approved by the town planning board in August last year, and we lost a lawsuit. Our group, the Clean Air Action Network, lost a lawsuit against the town planning board, and people were very uh, despondent, disappointed, and they thought it was a done deal. So we're having this meeting to tell people about the progress being made. Now, why, you know... Biochar, I hear a lot of climate activists actually like the idea. Why Why are groups concerned about this particular proposal? What are some of the problems that are yeah. seen with it? Thanks for that question. Well, um, it's not a biochar made out of wood, which is the typical um, um, way that biochar is made to be used as a soil amendment in farms and gardens. This biochar would be made with sewage sludge, that would be trucked in from the metropolitan New York area, Western Connecticut and Massachusetts, and the lower Hudson Valley. So, uh, and sewage sludge happens to be a very contaminated material. Uh, it's full of everything that is released from industrial plants into wastewater treatment systems, plus everything that residents put down the drain. Um, and so uh, one of one of the most um, concerning um, contaminants in sewage sludge are PFAS forever chemicals. And they have been found uh, in all sewage sludge that's been tested in the U.S. Now, I understand that the uh, biochar proposal was a major factor in the recent elections. How did that uh impact upon the elections in the uh, town? Well, it's very interesting. Uh, the town supervisor, uh, Todd Kuznier, who's actually the chair of the Board of Supervisors in Saratoga County, was clobbered. He received 851 votes 
um, compared to the uh, the uh, challenger who received 2,948 votes. So more than a three to one um, landslide against him. And this was one of the main factors. Another factor was a sewage line, a sewer line that people were objecting to was was done in a way in a in a way that they didn't have a say and was costing people much more than they were promised. So, who are some of the people going to be speaking uh, at this uh, community meeting on uh, Thursday, November sixteenth? Well, there are there is a lawyer um, from Pace. Uh, Pace Law, Pace University Law School, who happens to direct the the environmental litigation clinic there, as well as a law student. They're going to be speaking about the appeal to the case that the Clean Air Action Network lost. Uh, um, we also have Earth Justice speaking, uh, some uh, attorney from Earth Justice, who is representing the Clean Air Action Network. Uh, with the in the regulatory process with DEC, um, by the way, this Saratoga biochar has not completed its permit applications, so they cannot um, move forward on their project. We also have a chemical engineer who retired after 42 years working for Dupont, and went to work full time as a volunteer with the Michigan Sierra Club, helping grassroots groups understand permits and uh testing results and a whole variety of other things and she's she's really wonderful and then we also have an attorney from uh um my area from the greenwich area uh who work who, who's um senior counsel at a large law firm um and he's going to be talking about what actions the new town elected officials can take to uh put the nail in the coffin uh on this project now I understand that you know you had the litigation, but also uh, the State Department of Environmental Conservation has to review and approve the permit. What's uh, how's that proceeding at this point? Well, we we've done several Freedom of Information requests, and um, there is a notice of incomplete application. There have been several of several such notices. Um, a Saratoga biochar could not does not appear to be able to answer DEC's questions. Um, and until they until they satisfy DEC, which does not tend to be the most stringent, uh, that stringent in um, these approvals, um, nothing can happen. So what what are the next steps for for the local group in terms of organizing uh, opposition? Well, we we need to proceed as if uh, the permits the that DEC will eventually issue permits. That may not occur, but we need to uh, galvanize people and um, recruit people so that they're ready. Should permits be issued for a um, very active public comment period, um, we're going to be demanding public hearings, and we're also going to be um, seeking. Uh, allies um, from larger environmental and other kinds of organizations. You know, we need to keep we need to keep people's um, concerns alive, and that's another reason we're we're having this event. Um, no one would have guessed um, in May last year when there was a public hearing in the town of Moreau that we would be um, on this trajectory to 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 win. Um, people were 
we're saying it's a done deal. There's nothing we can do. So we want to keep hope alive and realize, and get people to realize that there's we only have to win on one front, even and we have battles underway in various places. Another thing that people that um is going to be discussed at this meeting is going to the Industrial Development Agency in Saratoga County and making sure that they do not provide tax breaks to this company. Now, are there similar, you know, sewer sludge bioshar plants in other parts of the state or the country? And how have they turned out if they've been able to operate? Well, here's an interesting story. In in the research about um, what impacts and what air pollution and other impacts they would have, several people discovered that there was a proposal in Taunton, Massachusetts. And what their uh, that, that municipality, probably the planning board, told the company is let we want to see the data from your project in in Newark, New Jersey, and when you have that, or in in the Newark, New Jersey area, when you have that data, we will we will review that and consider whether we want to give you a permit. So it's 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 a new approach. There there is at least one such plant in California, and there are some pyrolysis plants. Um, pyrolysis is the method used to make biochar. Um, pyrolysis is burning in the absence of oxygen. It produces synthetic, what they call synthetic gases or syn gases, and and char rather than ash. So there is not a lot of data out there on the impacts, but we have uh, we have a great deal of of reason to believe that that PFAS, um, forever chemicals, will be released. Um, including the fact that they do not break down at the temperatures that are have been proposed for the process. So there will be a community update on the campaign to stop Saratoga biochar uh, Thursday, November 16th, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Monroe Community Center. Uh, Tracy is with the uh, Clean Air Action Network of Glens Falls. So people want more information. Is there a website that they can check out? Um, they could email um T-R-A-C-Y dot F-R-I-S-C-H at gmail.com. They could also check one of our partners in this in this event is a group called Not Moreau, M-O-R-E-A-U. They have a very active presence on Facebook. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. And again, that that community meeting is being held from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Monroe Community Center, 144 Main Street in South Glens Falls. Monroe. The Schenectady-based organization, New York Folklore, currently has a Day of the Dead exhibition of ofrendas, or altars, and more by Aurelia Fernandez Moror. Executive Director Ellen McHale speaks with Bria Barthel about what's taking place at New York Folklore. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm back once again at one of my favorite places in the area, the New York Folklore Gallery and Shop on J Street in Schenectady, to talk with Ellen McHale, the Executive Director, about the organization and the very cool exhibit and the wonderful gift shop and all like that. 
So, Ellen, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Well, thank you very much, Bria. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Thanks, and it's always a pleasure to be here. So what got me uh, in now to talk with you is that I recently got a press release about your newest exhibit uh, on the Day of the Dead, El Dia de los Muertos, and that is November 2nd. The exhibit's been up for a while, but New York folklore has been so busy with other things it didn't get announced. So tell us about the Day of the Dead exhibit. Well, we actually began doing uh, Day of the Dead programming a couple years ago, and this exhibit came out of that uh, couple years of working with artists about uh, Dia de los Muertos. Uh, it's the work of Aurelia Fernandez Marure, who is a woman who we've known for many, many years. She does wonderful uh Mexican Katrina dolls that are the uh, figures, the sculptural figures of, of a skeleton with a, a skull uh, face. And she does really incredible. Uh, she does some life-size ones. We don't have a life-size one here. But she has made a big uh, impact on the Mexican uh, communities throughout the Hudson Valley. And uh, she's often featured in many Dia de los de los Muertos um, programming. And so we said, well, we have been doing this programming uh, with some local uh, artists. Ana Lorena Diana is one who's helped us very much over the last couple of years. But we really wanted to bring Aurelia's artwork into the picture. Often in October and early November, when we think Day of the Dead, its restaurants have lots of little statues of skeletons doing things as though they're alive. And yet the variety of things that you have here, both in size and scope and media, it's wonderful. Tell us a little bit about some of the pieces in the, in the exhibit. Well, some of my favorites are ones she made specifically for the exhibit. So there's uh, a couple different little shadow boxes that are Dia de los Huertos uh, ofrendas or altars. So she made a little altars for us to be exhibiting alongside the one that we created here um, as kind of a community altar. So that's one thing that I really like. And the other is uh, we have some Katrina figures. They're skeletal figures, but they're doing things. So we have some musicians that are playing music. Then we have a Katrina figure talking on her cell phone. So um, Aurelia brings those contemporary features into her work. And then you uh, also mentioned that she did a workshop for you recently where people made skulls of something? Yes, actually, uh, not Aurelia, but Ana Lorena Diana, who is uh, local to the Capital District, is also uh, from Mexico. And she actually was the one who began working with us a few years ago to make the ofrenda or the altar. She coached us on how it should be done. She helped us gather the elements uh, and this year, uh, we asked her to do a, a sugar skull workshop. It's a feature on an ofrenda that everybody would have in their home if they made one. It's a shape of a skull, and it's made out of sugar. And then you decorate it with icing, uh, you know, the the uh, 
baker's icing that's kind of stiff. Donna Lorena has been doing uh, Sugar Skull workshops for New York folklore in a school setting. So I said, hey, do you want to do this um, for the public? So we, as part of the Schenectady Spooktacular, Anna Lorena ran a full day of doing uh, Sugar Skull decorating workshops. Somehow when I heard first heard the term sugar skull, I thought of how I feel with headaches if I have too much chocolate. But <laughs> this has a, a different meaning. It's made from the sugar. Made from sugar. Yeah. And I, we tell kids, not don't eat it. It's not safe. <laughs> but the reality is it's all food uh, grade items. So, uh, but yes, it's totally uh, sugar. It's packed into a mold and then it dries in the shape of the skull. And honoring the Mexican tradition fits in so much with the goal of New York folklore. So can you tell us something about the organization? Sure. Uh, We were founded in 1944, so we've been, we'll be celebrating our 80th year uh, in 2024. So we are beginning to really think about how to make that apparent. But we have been around for 80 years, but we were formed with a cultural equity mission. Uh, the first founders of our organization were folks who came out of progressive education movements. Uh, one of them was part of the anarchist movement in New York City at the time in the 1940s. And they really saw Um, It was an early civil rights uh, group. They saw uh, that cultural uh, equity and the the recognition of the the, uh, heritage of everybody in New York State should be recognized. So uh, we're very proud of that mission, and we try to continue that uh, idea in the work that we do. And as I look around the gift shop here, it's apparent that there are many different cultural traditions represented. I see um, indigenous peoples, pine needle weaving and basketry, Ukrainian decorated eggs. Can you tell us just a little bit about some of the other traditions that are, are represented here? For purchase, by the way. <laughs> well, everybody who is in our gift shop has to be Uh, in New York at this moment. They don't have to be from here. They uh, can be, uh, have moved here, but but they're all New York State-based artists working contemporary, in in the contemporary context. So it's not historical. Um, So we do have several artists who are, uh, well, we have Chinese uh, paper cutting and calligraphy. We have uh, rural arts. We have uh, a stained glass work and and stonework we have uh, wood carving so we we try to work with artists where they're coming from what they would like to uh, sell we sell everything on consignment for the most part so uh, we feel that the money goes directly to an artist Um, our newest artist actually is um, very recently come to the capital district from Ecuador Uh, so we again we're always trying to uh, work with who is in our community right now. And you said you've been you've been doing a lot of work with immigrants and refugees and and our newest neighbors. We have uh, we I have a great staff. We have uh, three field workers who are working with different in different communities. Uh, between them, they speak many languages so we can really uh, interact with artists um, at the point where they are. 
So I also see on the wall behind you some pull string puppets. Where are those from? Uh, well, they're a woodcarver who's in Rensselaer County. Uh, so he uh, he is uh, somebody who works in wood, and he's uh, local um, to this region. So yes, we've been trying to, we have uh, three field workers who are working within community. And uh, when they identify an artist, we try to think, how could we assist that person to work not better, but um, get their work out there? How can we help them uh, maybe make a living at what they're doing? Because many artists would like to do that. Um, and it's very difficult in this um, milieu to be an uh, artist who is able to sustain themselves from their artwork. Uh, so often when we in encounter an artist, we say, what would you like uh, to do with your work? And how can we help you as New York folklore? Okay, and again, the gallery and shop is on J Street in Schenectady. Can you tell us the address, and can you give us information on how people can get more information? So we're at 129 J Street. We're on the pedestrian walkway between City Hall and Proctor's. Uh, we have a website, uh, nyfolklore.org, and there's uh, many of uh, events happening, not just in Schenectady, but throughout the Capital District. I think our next uh, workshop will be in Hudson. Uh, it's a chestnut roasting workshop. Uh, that's a food waste demonstration. We do a lot with food. Um, so uh, you can see us on our website and see what's happening next, but we have a pretty full schedule. Okay, and that's nyfolklore.org. This is Bria Barthel talking with Ellen McHale, Executive Director of New York Folklore. Thanks so much, Ellen. Thank you very much. For more details, visit newyorkfolklore.org. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Cal McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOALP 106.9 FM Albany, streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can share this program with others who you think might also like it too. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Aquaponics is a bit of a buzzword these days in sustainability-minded circles for its promise in producing an abundance of food in tiny spaces. In this interview from 2018, correspondent Mark Russo talks with Dylan Rees of a for a guided tour of the Basswood Living Cooperative's small-scale aquaponics system. Hey Dylan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me here in our basement. So what is aquaponics? Aquaponics is it's a combination of um, aquaculture and hydroponics. So hydroponics is just uh, growing uh, vegetables, growing plants in um, nutrient-rich water instead of soil. Um, aquaculture is just growing fish and other aquatic uh, animals. And so aquaponics combines the two um, using nutrients that come from the waste of aquatic animals to feed the plants in, in a closed loop. It's 
actually one of the most efficient systems in terms of space conversion into food as far as I know. Is that true? Yes, and that's because it's an ecology, and, and nature engineers close loops. So aquaponics is exactly that, except humans are working with it. So how did you get interested in aquaponics in the first place? How did you find out about it? Um, I started as just a regular run-of-the-mill gardener. Um, we have uh, Capital Roots, which has probably 50 gardens in the Capital Region, I think maybe more. So I started doing that back in, um, I think it was 2014. Um, did it for a couple of years. Started to get to the point that I knew what I was doing, but I wanted to expand and explore and, and do more. Um, I built um, something in my backyard that I called uh, the food pond, which was my attempt to build an aquatic garden. Um, I had um, some, let's see, what did I have in that? I had um, some lily pads. I had some pennywort. Um, I had some, some aquatic plants. I tried to pick a bunch of edible aquatic plants. And then, of course, mosquitoes get into stagnant water. So then I had to add fish. I added um, little mosquito fish. Um, and pretty soon I had the beginning of an, a proto-aquaponic system in a kiddie pool. And then when it got cold, I needed to do something with the food pond in my backyard. So I wound up taking all the living things in that um, kiddie pool and moving them into a tank. Um, and at that point, my first aquaponic system was born. And so that from that system, it, we've now evolved into a multi-unit system that takes up uh, probably 20, 25 feet of a wall in our basement. Uh, there's three tanks here. Uh, can you give us a walkthrough of the three tanks, starting with the biggest one with the brightest lights? All right, so tank one, this is the original tank um, that I was just talking about. Inside, you see um, what are probably at this point the grandchildren of the original or maybe great-grandchildren of the original mosquito fish. Um, at this point, they're a self-sustaining population of maybe a dozen or so. Now, the, the mosquito fish, are these uh, like native? Is this something that you would just find in a pond near, like outside if you, you know, stuck a, a net into a pond somewhere? Uh, I've heard of them being put into ponds around here. I'm not sure whether they're a native species or not. I'm not sure that they are, but I don't think they're classified as an invasive one. Um, but we, yeah, we've got that. We've got the goldfish. We have uh, currently two goldfish, um, and the goldfish are the source of the ammonia. If you've ever had uh, goldfish as a pet, you know that you have to clean the water a lot. Well, it, that exact quality is what makes them great for aquaponics because that ammonia gets converted into nitrites and then nitrates, and the plants love it. It's that nitrogen in the that's available nitrogen allows the plants to convert that into protein, mm -hmm. which allows them to grow their bodies along with carbon dioxide that they pull out of the air and convert with lights. Now we have a, a an LED light, um, actually many many different colors of LED lights. We have clear or white, blue, and red. What? Why are there so many different colors? So this is kind of a fancy LED light. Um, it. It has a day and night cycle. It will kind of do a twilight setting um, based on a timer where it kind of goes blue for a little bit. I think right now it's kind of the midday cycle, even though it's actually night. Um, I got this light at Goodwill. It was just a, uh, a fun find. And by the way, you can buy pre-made systems like this for maybe like a thousand bucks. I just cobbled mine together for less than a hundred bucks from stuff I got on Craigslist. So, so before you buy a system like that, you can do it yourself pretty cheap. 
So we have abundant greenery growing out of these two window boxes that are stacked on top of the larger tank. Can you walk us through what you've got, what we've got growing here? Yeah. So when I talked about my original food pond, one thing I mentioned was pennywort. I just bought um, some of that on eBay from a seller who was growing it. Came in the mail. It grew pretty well in my pond, and I moved it into a substrate of uh, broken up brick particles and expanded clay pellets that I douse with um, water from the tank with a, using a pump every night. Um, the pennywort, that same pennywort is still growing. It's growing really well. It's kind of got a nice parsley quality to it in terms of the flavor, but it kind of looks like a nasturtium almost. Um, we have uh, Cuban oregano here, which is kind of has an oregano flavor. It's actually a succulent. It's a little bit different, but it also is growing really nicely in one of our tanks. Um, Incredibly fragrant lemon oregano flavor yeah. and incredibly prolific. This was just a, a little cutting just a month or two ago, and this is a, a serious plant now. Yeah, I got this as, as two little cuttings from a friend of mine, and it's really kind of taken over this, this window box. Um, behind it, we have a couple little um, hemp uh, sprouts. Um, hemp is, of course, it has all kinds of industrial uses. You can make fiber with it. It's very protein-rich. Um, I thought it would be interesting to experiment with, and it seems to be growing pretty nicely. Um, although the the uh, pennywort's growing so well that it's kind of competing for light. Um, there's a lot of green stuff coming out of these beds. And over here to the left, we have some great protuberances coming from this other tank uh, that's under the red lights. There's, it seems like there's a few fish in here. What's going on over here? So this is the uh, the second tank I put together. This one hasn't really truly found its purpose yet. Um, I, I'm planning to run uh, another bed off of it that um, can be used for microgreens. But for right now, the main thing it has in it is a large taro plant. Um, if you've ever seen taro, it's, it's, it grows uh, aquatically. It grows these great big shoots with these heart-shaped uh, leaves. Um, and the, the root contains this kind of tuber, um, which is sort of like a potato. Um, it's common in Asian dishes. You can actually turn it into French fries if you want that are really delicious. Um, yeah, it's good. It's a, the base diet starch of a uh, whole Polynesian culture. They would pound it into poi. Yeah, that's right. So, we, And we have one of them growing here. I'm trying to get it to make tubers. It hasn't made a lot yet, but it's made a lot of really beautiful leaves. It's nice. So basically we, what we have here is, is a bunch of fish tanks with what are our pet fish from the pet store that are also producing a large amount of like culinary herbs and just beautiful foliage down in the basement. Yep, and it's just it's down here. It just takes up a little corner of our basement. It doesn't need um, any actual sunlight at all, and it runs off of LED bulbs. Honestly, I, would, I think the entire setup here probably takes less power than two incandescent bulbs. So we feed the, the fish fish food, but there, we have other critters down here that we feed other are some leftovers and scraps and other things from the house too are uh, composting worms. Yeah, so we have a couple of different bugs down here to supplement this um, overall system. Um, this giant right here, we have a giant uh, black Tupperware bin with a spigot installed in the bottom. And that is the larger of two red composting worm bins that we have down here. So the purpose of the spigot is to drain off worm tea 
which is sort of the, the, the liquid that results from the digestion process of worms eating the scraps you put into the bin. It's incredibly rich uh, in bacterial life as well as available nutrients. It's like amazing to put on your houseplants, turns them in vibrant green and helps them flower. Yeah, and in particular, it's very mineral rich. Um, so I think what you would find is it would it would add to the structure of plants very well. Um, so it's it's kind of you have that. You also get the worm castings, which is just a great fertilizer. So you get two really great products for your from your garden out of the worms and they compost really really fast compared to just a standard backyard compost pile let's just quickly look at these last two boxes now if any, folks came to uh saw dylan at story harvest he brought some of these critters with him and you may have seen them let's uh let's talk about this a little bit yeah and they they also made an appearance at uh, my nature lab workshop and so what we have is well we have two here one of them is um a, a bin of garden snails, um, which are another creature that, that composts for you, and in this case turns into something you can eat. If you've ever had escargot, uh, a garden snail can be eaten that way. And then over here we have uh, an orange uh, isopod, uh, what's sometimes called a Cape Cod roach, but you would probably know it as a roly-poly, um, an orange one. Um, they're actually crustaceans, and so um, at the house we've been experimenting a little bit with seeing how tasty they are as crustaceans, how they compare to crabs and shrimp. They taste a little bit like shrimp. They do taste a little bit. They're, they're tiny little sh tiny little land shrimp, and they're really easy to raise in just like a small shoebox-sized bin. Cool. Well, thank you for taking the time to walk us through these. We look forward to seeing you at Sanctuary events in the future. I'll be there. That was an interview by Mark Russo with Dylan Reese back from 2018 looking at the aquaponics system. For our next segment, we welcome local comedian Mike McLaughlin here with us in the studio. Welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> I, uh, I said, wait, where am I? Like, where are we? <laughs> the sanctuary for sanctuary. independent media. <laughs> So tell us a little bit uh, about you. Uh, yeah, I do comedy and stuff. I don't know. No, I'm like a regular person that does it. More of like a hobbyist, maybe. I guess that's the word you would say nowadays. Well, but, being a full-time comedian is it's kind yeah, of a Yeah, no, I did gem, that. Right? I did that for three and a half years. And oh, then okay. I, w I had five roommates, and I was like eating ramen every night. And then I, um, one day I made a pros and cons list, and the cons list was just so long. And so I just like... <laughs> I just stopped and got a job. So, yeah, but, yeah. Stop eating ramen. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> so how would you describe your style? So for somebody listening who maybe, you know, mm. has, there's, I mean, the, the genre is pretty wide. So is it one-liners? Is it nah. long stories with a punchline? It's like I do a lot of long stories without a punchline. Without it's a punchline. Yeah, line. a lot of long, boring stories <laughs> where the audience starts to leave. That's what I really... Oh, okay. Really, unique niche. Yes, it's a unique niche. I got it. I got a lot mm -hmm. of jokes about them leaving, and then that kind of gets them back sometimes. But uh, no, it's mostly like just stories and, you know, punchlines, like observational stuff and like stories of growing up. I grew up in Albany, so well, Albany stuff is like fun. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Is there a story, one of those uh, long stories without a punchline that you're particularly known for that could give us a little bit more insight than know. your vague answers? I'm putting him right on the I'm spot. I'm just putting him on the spot. I don't know. I just walked into a church. There was, there's nobody in here. <laughs> I got it. I pulled up. I parked. Can I talk normally? Yeah, totally. All right, cool. 
but I pulled up outside. I'm in, can we say we are downtown Troy? Yeah, right. And I don't. I don't well, like we're, we're North Troy. North Troy, almost Lansingburg. Okay, Lansingburg. And then uh, I pull up and I'm like, where? Why? The street's so dimly lit. There's no. I'm like, where is this? And then I just see this church, and I'm like, is this the church? And I open up the door, and there's nobody in there. It's like a gym, and I'm like, I, and I just walk. I follow the light, and then I come back here, and I see you guys have a whole radio studio. Follow like, the light. I think follow, that's that's yes. that's the way to come to the studio. Yes. Yeah. It's very uh, it's very interesting. It's kind of cool. You guys got this going on. Yeah. Well, we have some events coming up. If you want to see the place full of people. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I saw, I looked online. It looked like it has people a lot. It I does. Just, yeah. yes. It does. It's not always dark and <laughs> dimly lit. And... So, as yeah. I mentioned, mm-hmm. when I didn't find a whole bunch of you when I was looking you up, but I did yeah. find a mention of you in a Times Union article, and it was talking about moving a lot of comedians, getting sucked into New York City. Oh, so yeah. what is, with it being only two and a half hours away, easy train ride, does is New York City the ultimate for comedians in Albany? Is it do we retain comedians? So what what is that relationship we don't between retain comedians? No, not at all. No. Is so everyone just no. goes to New York City once you're every comic that I knew that we started here. If you get like four laughs, you're like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> and then you just like go to the city, Austin, L.A., whatever. But um, it's just it's easier, I guess, for them. Uh, to get more stage time away from this area. So people that get some, usually people stay here for about a year and a half and then they kind of like go somewhere else. And then if they fail, they come back. (laughs) So yeah, you know. So is it, it, could it be possible for Albany to be a better comedy scene? What is lacking in Albany or is it not, or is that the right, wrong question? Uh, I, I mean, a comedy club in the city would be nice. We used to have one when I started. I started at the Comedy Works up on Northern Boulevard. It was great. And I would go up pretty much three, four nights a week there. Now there's only one. And uh, you either get on the funny bone, but like after COVID, all like the comics that were big, everybody had to kind of drop down. So now it's really yeah. hard to get up on the funny bone unless you want to just host. And then the only other club is in Saratoga, which is like... Doesn't really bring a lot of people. But, but so. you have here in Troy, Five One Eight Craft, Lark Street Tavern. Yeah, yeah that's I right. guess the, they're not the, really comedy. No, not venues, but like the Lark Street show, the tavern show we've been doing has been selling out every time, and it's been like really. I, basically, I just mimicked. I went to school in the city. I went to St. John's, and then I would go to the Comedy Cellar, which is a club in the village, and I just was fell in love with their like style. You have like eight, nine comics go up all to like ten, twelve minutes. They're, I mean, they were the greatest. It was like, you know, Patrice O'Neill, Louis C.K. It was great comics. So I just kind of do that in Lark Tavern. And it does like, I can't believe like some of the responses. It's been like really good. And I bring comics up from New York. So that's like fun. Oh, at Lark Tavern. Yeah, you have a show there coming up. I haven't yeah. been there since it was Tess's. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> yeah, it's well, been Well, Tess McGarry's now. Yeah. Before the burning. But yeah, so yeah, what? Yeah, before what, the burning. <laughs> I know. Uh, so what is... What what's the what's the vibe there now for at Lark Tavern for the, for the comedy scene oh, specifically for the comedy scene it's like just I basically we have the stages off to the left so we kind of just it's against like a brick wall and we just shove as many people in as we can and like a tight you know the way they have it set up is like more of like a jazz loungy vibe and we kind of change that for the comedy to just get people like as many people into like the room as possible and then. The energy, you know, once you get a few laughs going, the energy gets going, and then 
And then it's kind of like, you know, it's like a real comedy club. So it's kind of exciting. Well, this event coming up, it looks like you've got a pretty cool headliner. Peter, oh, yeah. Peter Ravello. Yeah, Pete, Pete Ravello. Yeah, yeah, Pete's great. I, uh, we used to do open mics in the city together for like years. And I uh, used to like come over to our, I used to live in an apartment with like six comedians and Pete would come over and hang out. Now he just kind of blew up on uh, like Instagram and TikTok and stuff in the last like couple of years. So yeah, he's doing like really well. So it'll be, it'll be a good one. So is that the key to success? Is the I think so. Media? Honestly, I think that's the only that's <laughs> the only way. I think I don't know how else. I have a friend named Julian who's a great comic, and he just quit because he hated social media. And it's he, hard. Yeah, and even he calls me. He's like, I don't know how you can do this without social media. You have to use it. Mm. Like, there's no other way. Like, right? Like, you know, like how how is you going to get noticed? I don't know. Just know. like grinding for 20 years and then you finally get, you know, I don't know. Post, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think, yeah, you kind of. You do have to post to Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, all yep. those. I don't post to so Instagram. What is, what is yours? Like, I how have do TikTok. We you only See, have TikTok. I have a secret TikTok. A secret one. Yeah. So also not really utilizing. Uh -uh. No. no, I just okay. put up bits and see how they do. And if they don't want to delete that. <laughs> so you, were, you, were, you were just saying you have to use social media, but then you're not using social media. No, right? I know. I know. I know. <laughs> Dude, I'm Irish Catholic. I can't. I can't. It's so hard to like put yourself out there and not, you know, hate yourself. So uh, I'm trying to do better with like the promotion. Even coming here and be like, I got a show. I want to like punch myself in the face. I can't. It's like a tough, it's well, tough. we'll do the work for you. You've got another <laughs> one you. coming up. You've got the, uh, what was? Opening for. Oh, the Joffrey. Uh, Jeffrey. Jeffrey. Ar oh, that was the Osmos. second one. Got it. Yeah, that, that guy's, that guy's amazing. He's, he did most of his on social media too, but I, I did a um, Boston Comedy Festival with him years ago when he was real young. And uh, I remember he was just like throwing books telling the audience to read a book that they don't read. It was just, he was so funny and just such a, like a weird guy. And then now he's, he's like really like became like somebody. I think he's going to probably be pretty famous in the next couple of years. So that like throwing a book into the audience is like a, a, a tangible, like a different kind of breaking with the audience is, is our props a, a really good. <laughs> yeah, props, but I can't remember the bit, but it was something like you guys don't read. They like, who was the last book somebody read? And somebody raised their hand. He's like, yeah, what was it? And he's like, duh. And he started throwing books at people that nobody reads anymore. So When I think of prop comedians, I think of Carrot Top. Huh. <laughs> you know, that has the, probably the greatest prop comedian Never, of all yeah. time. <laughs> John of the Winters. John of the Winters. John of the Winters. So with one. Jeffrey, where were you before performing this? Uh, that's at Lark Tavern, too. Oh, uh, Lark Tavern. I think that's January 7th. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that one's going to be, that'll be a really uh, a really good one, yeah. I mean, we but, only have like less than a minute left to wrap yeah. up, but what what is it that draws you to come? Why, why should listeners be coming to comedy shows? What is special about the Albany scene or the Capital Region scene? Uh, it's probably better than you, th you think it's going to be. Mm. Like if you, that's what I've heard when people come to the shows that we put on, it's, they laugh a lot and feel good. And then when you go with the rest of your night, that's probably why I even got into comedy is that you do, you go to a show and you laugh a bunch and then you go out and you just feel good, I guess. You know? Feeling good is definitely a draw. So, again, what's that TikTok handle? That secret TikTok <laughs> handle? <laughs> uh, at Mike G. McLaughlin. All right. All right. No longer so secret. Mm, no yeah. Well, thanks, Mike, for joining yeah. us. All right. Thank you, guys. <laughs> and again, that we were speaking with Mike McLaughlin. Uh, we also would like to uh, thank Brad for helping us get these comedy interviews. Thanks, Brad Monkell. Mm -hmm.
Uh, and now, turning away from comedy and into poetry, Tom Francis welcomes Pittsburgh photographer and poet Jason Baldinger to the stage for reading a at the Linda, WMC's performing arts studio. Hosted by Hudson Valley Writer Guild and literary journal, journalists, Hobo Camp Review and Trailer Park Quarterly, Jason's poetry takes you on a journey through the Midwest United States, meeting many characters along the way. Jason Baldinger is a poet and photographer from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's penned 15 books of poetry, the newest of which include A History of Back Roads Misplaced, Selected Poems 2010 to 2020, and This Still Life with James Benger. His first book of photography, Lazarus, as well as two ekphrastic collections with Rebecca Schmeda and Robert Dean are forthcoming. His work has appeared across a wide variety of online sites and print journals. You can hear him read his work on Bandcamp and on LPs by the Go-To-Beds and Theramonster. On July 23, 2020, he was one of the poets who shared their work at the Linda as part of a two-night event series presented by the Hudson Valley Writers Guild, Hobo Camp Review, and Trailer Park Quarterly. Pittsburgh. Hi, I'm Jason Baldinger. They'll tell you I'm apparently not uh, from Pittsburgh, but the embodiment of Pittsburgh. I'm not sure if that's true, but maybe. We'll see. I'm going to read you a poem that uh, Tom Bakel has put out in the topography of disappearing. Uh, this chapbook is now out of print. And this poem is called, I Remember the Royal River. I Remember the Royal River. A bleached skeleton, bones, calloused and raw, these forever miles, the only skin left attached. Vermont rain-soaked halos glow dry in cold July sunshine. I remember the Royal River, a mile-long rutted driveways, a peninsula breaks into islands, black flies, tall grass, backgammon days pass, picking ticks off golden retrievers. I remember the Royal River, the main granite coast, lone trees claw to hold rocks, the ice-cold Atlantic, this gaunt face in tide pool. I remember the Royal River, tequila on the docks, fortification for a last day's boogie. Gather these atoms south with notions of Sacco and Vanzetti. I remember the Royal River as a skeleton with a compass left in place of memory. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. All right, this is a poem about the great state of Kansas. It's called Back When We Were Wild. Kansas, I wish we could share a kiss, but the prairie sneaks up so fast and then never leaves. Three wasted days boiling in hundreds heat across endless flat with a mute ghost. I haven't seen a hill and somehow I missed a famous frontier town. I'm reading Ray Carver while I drive. It seems more useful than maps. In a junk shop or a motel with no hot water, I catch a smell that reminds me of atonement, of another time, back when we were wild. That's the poem. Anyway, this poem is called We Own the Night. It's for my friend Renee Alberts. I was in a Walmart in Moundsville, West Virginia, when you texted that you went nuclear. 
Hell, I've known you for 15 years and you've always been fierce, but I knew the life you chose didn't sit with you. You texted tonight, I'm leaving town. Sorry I missed you until now. Can we meet later? A question sits on the bar. How do you love people who don't love themselves? We shoot bullet and you walk me through walking out of your life. That moment on the beach staring off at the Pacific when you realized you were living someone else's life. That moment you realized you didn't know why. Was it that what they told you you should want? Was it only for security? I've had that moment many times, staring at the Pacific, at the Atlantic, on the Gulf of Mexico, at sunrise and sunset on Lake Champlain, almost 20 years apart. I've had that moment in many places, and it's a hard moment. These are difficult questions. They are questions to be proud of, but they are questions with no easy answers. We raise time tonight and try and squeeze everything into a last physical conversation. We talk about freedom. We talk about letting go. We talk about isolating the noise that holds us in place and how in that isolation it may be possible to find what you actually need. And then we talk more about freedom. We own the night tonight with all its useless beauty as Sunday sleepers fog through dreams of their disaster lives. And I drive you back to your folks. You're full of what it all means. But I've never seen you more confident, more beautiful, than when you walked away. Thank you all. This is called Blind Into Leaving. I'm drinking beer in a bourbon town again. The waitress raised eyes suspicious as I lock eyes on an alligator and a shark. The beltways of Kentucky are kind. There is no stress, no trucks, no cops. Set the cruise just north of 80. Miles dissolve easy. Still, if I dive into bourbon now, I'll be slobbering in moments. There are some things you can't drink away. Guitar player works Statesboro blues, more almond than McTell. The sunset was rose water in the rear view tonight. I wanted to hold my breath. The waitress wants to know if I need another. Babe, I need an IV. She sees it and she tells me these are good people. It took three tries to get a room. The lobby was a full bloom Appalachian floor show, every toilet full of The waitress brings me a third and I down it in one magic swallow. Broke down engine guzzles gasoline. Wizard guitarist is on to finger style sweet leaf. I tip and walk blind into leaving. was published in River Dog many, many, many years ago. This is called Our Great and Wasted Hours. Tonight, I dream of a bar I frequented with its giant shark, abominable snowman, the tree branches filled with silent birds. I miss noise tonight. Bar ambiance, Penn Avenue, a stifled staccato soundtrack to our great and wasted hours. Gin and tonic, cold beer. She wears a vintage yellow dress, floral printed, the same one she wore back on the first night I kissed her, back before the Carter family set the world on fire, back when McClellan's troops froze under the expanse of heaven. Good night stars, cold bloom, rhododendron blossoms fall. Tonight, I miss noise.
This is for Becky. This is from the afterlife as a hangover. Michelle texts that her mother died. Would I meet her for a drink with Kate at the Tiki bar? And I text back, and Kate is late. I hear, I head to Michelle's and hear her, Richard, and I talk about her mother's death. Her last words, don't be afraid, Michelle. And I can't fathom how you talk to your spouse about your mother's death when your husband has been reduced to apologies. Sorry for cancer. Sorry for dying. And I talk about my grandmother's death. A month in and out of consciousness after a stroke took most of her spark. My brother and I spent August nights, hospital picnic benches, smoked, talked our goodbyes to each other for her. She died mid-afternoon and I was late, caught in a storm, believe it or not, time to the moment she passed. They waited till I was there, then they pulled the sheet. Sometimes you have plenty of time to say goodbye. Sometimes you have none. In this bar, time fades and we get to stories. Kate is ribald, Michelle is dry, and I try and keep it silly, but I can't stop staring at Michelle's finger and her dead mother's ring. The third zombie unties her tongue and leaves a wide-eyed bartender and also nets us a discount on drinks. These nights, adrift on time expired, I think in terms of prayers. Bless the women who smoke. Bless the women who say f graceful, gossamer, and vulgar. Bless the way we break into pieces. Bless us when we pretend to keep it together. And bless the bartenders who, for just a moment, deliver the drinks that take the pain away. Yeah. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. And Tom Francis brings us a poet highlight this time every week. Find Talking with Poets segments on our website, mediasanctuary.org. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Keanu McPherson, also your engineer for tonight. We want to thank all of our volunteers who made, today, who made today's episodes possible. Segment producers, Mark Dunley, who also helped out with headlines, Bria Barthel, Mark Russo, Brad Monkel, Tom Francis, and of course, your co-host, Sina Bazilahickey, and me, Kaylin McPherson. This program comes from the... This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of the monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. And we want to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Medi and Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. on weekdays to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. We appreciate all your listeners. Thank you. We uh, do this for you. So um, it's always great to hear feedback from you. So do let us know what you think. And thank you all. <laughs>